Before I get started with the main part of the message, I'd like you to go ahead and give some thought to an activity I'm going to ask you to do during the sermon. This is audience participation today. In your bulletins, we've already, Neil already talked about this awesome insert uh, with all the holiday goings on here. If you have the opportunity to see Debbie Rogers sometime this week, uh, give her a huge thanks. She was doing disaster relief. She spent most of her day yesterday with a comm meeting, and she put this awesome insert together uh, for us, and I am very appreciative of that. But as Neil said, this is really for you to take home, but not to stick on the refrigerator, but to share with folks. And that's where the yellow slip comes in. That's the audience participation piece. So you've got this yellow slip here, and and I'll talk to you at the appropriate time about it, but I want you to start thinking about it, because what I'm going to ask you to do is put down three names, names of people that you would like to see sitting in one of the seats near you sometime this holiday season. We've got a lot of things going on, and, and this is an exciting time. We get all fired up in the holiday season, and hopefully you guys do too, but These could be people that are in your family but don't go to church. They could be friends. They could be new neighbors. They could be a coworker who's struggling with something. Just someone you'd like to see around you here somewhere in the next month and a half. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to put their names down and to commit, to pray for them, that they'd be open to an invitation to join you somewhere along the line before you now in the end of the year, and then for you to commit to actually invite them to say, hey, we've got a dinner, we've got a musical, we've got a service about giving thanks, we've got messages about the, the Christmas story, whatever it is that you think will you know, sort of draw them, and invite them to join us. So I want you to think about that so that you're not put on the spot, but don't think so hard that you missed the rest of the message this morning, because I feel like God's given us a really great passage. Now, according to one expert, and you know, it's an expert, you never know, but it seems plausible, rings true. I feel like I've heard this number elsewhere. It's estimated that the average person will experience a crisis every two to three months. It could be a business crisis, it could be a financial crisis, it could be a personal crisis, a professional crisis, a health crisis, any sort. And what that really means is that everybody you know, everybody in this room is either in a crisis right now has recently been in a crisis or is going to experience one somewhere in the relatively near future. By definition, they're unplanned, they're unexpected. You can't predict them. And so really all you can do and control about it is how to respond effectively when it happens. Effectively responding to a crisis is the subject of this final installment of our series on the book of James. In today's passage, James is writing to a church that is clearly enduring a great deal of suffering, but he gives them very specific instructions about how to hold up and endure that. But really, those instructions, as we'll see, are timeless, and they apply just as much to us today about how to respond to a crisis in a godly way. So turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We know that James's audience is clearly suffering because he's giving them the examples of the prophets and of Job, whose name is synonymous with suffering. And he's using them as an encouragement. But the interesting thing is he's not particular about a specific group or a specific situation, a specific place. And so that's how we can be assured that what he is doing is he is giving us instructions as well, as he has given every believer over the last 2,000 years, on how to cope with a crisis. What we have here is really God's game plan for a crisis, whether it's in our lives as Christians or in as our, our church collectively. And what is that game plan? Well, it gives us three commands that we're going to explore. And I went ahead and I highlighted them here because I found when I was prepping for this, this was a difficult passage for me to pull the threads apart and get to what is the game plan here. The commands are to be patient, be courageous, and be unified. He interweaves these commands with two helpful illustrations, one about farmers and one about the prophets. He concludes with a promise of blessing for those who endure. I think we could all agree that this game plan is very different from what the world's game plan would be for us. It's different from what's taught in management classes and leadership classes. The world tells us to act quickly and decisively, to take the initiative to deploy our skills and our talents and our resources. It talks to us about crisis communication and spin control. But as we do those things and as a crisis continues to grow and comes to overwhelm our abilities, we lose heart sometimes. Our will and our courage can begin to fail. We can begin to lash out at those around us. Even when we do overcome the crisis, and most crises we do get through, if we're following this plan, we come out scarred, or the people around us do. We're weakened and our relationships are damaged, and I would suspect that most of us have been there, done that. But that's not God's game plan for a crisis. His plan will see you through, stronger and blessed. So let's look at these commands to be patient, to be courageous, to be unified in a little more depth as we go through God's game plan here for surviving a crisis. Now, the first command is, com- is repeated twice. And by command, I'm speaking that grammatically in the original, you can say these are the commands he gives, and there are three. The first one is repeated twice to make sure we get the point. It's probably very timely for the way our culture operates, and that is to be patient. It's right there at the beginning of verses 7 and 8. He writes, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. That command is completely counterintuitive to how our world works. We are in an area 
of type A personalities. Patience just doesn't come to us naturally. Our first instinct is to make plans and start responding and gather resources and go, to, go to into battle. But as Christians, we need to see that our first and foremost thing we need to realize is that we're never alone in a crisis. And we don't have to resolve every crisis purely on our own strength. In fact, for many crises, our strength is inadequate. Our abilities are not sufficient. That's what makes them a crisis instead of just a problem or a nuisance. And that, I think, is the point of the illustration with the farmers. To help us understand why we need to be patient, but also what it means to be patient, because I think we are often confused in our culture about what it means to be patient. So growing grain in ancient Israel was on a different schedule than it is here in the United States. The early rains that James talks about actually fall in October and November. They come pretty reliably, and and that's the point at which farmers can begin plowing and casting seed and burying the seed. And they would do this until roughly January. Then it would be time to plant other crops like vegetables and things like that. And then they would continue planting and weeding until March. The late rains that James talks about come in March and April. They were absolutely essential because they enable the crops to fully mature. No rain, no crops. If the rain came, the barley would be ready in May, the wheat would be ready in June. The farmer had to be patient waiting for these rains because they can't plant before the early rains. The soil is too hard and there's nothing to nourish the seed. They're utterly dependent on the late rains because without it, the crop never comes to maturity. So these most important elements of their lives, really, were something that was completely out of their control, where they just had to wait on God's timing. They had to wait and depend on God's provision, and they knew that he would provide because he was present for them. Well, like farmers, we need to recognize that there are aspects of our lives in our world that are beyond our control. That's kind of what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks as we've been walking through James. There are just simply things we don't control. These things are in the hands of God, and we need to trust him, and we need to trust that he seeks the best for us because that's what he's told us in his word. He's with us in the midst of every crisis, even when we don't feel him. And we need to be patient in waiting for him to create the right opportunities and the right moments for us to act, because if we don't, We're like a farmer trying to plant seed too soon or reap the crops too soon, and all we do is a bunch of work that's frustrating and produces nothing. How long do we have to wait? Well, that's the hard part, right? It could be a really long time. James is not making a promise on a time frame here. We need to remember that our lives are like a mist, Right? The years feel long, terribly long sometimes, but they're short in comparison to eternity. So how long do we have to wait? Sometimes it's not very long at all. Sometimes God starts helping us out of the crisis quickly, within days or weeks. 
But sometimes that crisis, the, the suffering, the pain, the loss, it's with us until the end of our days. But James encourages the believers to see that they need to take heart and be patient because the coming of the Lord is near from the perspective of eternity. And that's a perspective that's really difficult for us to come to terms with because we feel the present so acutely. We feel the years so sharply, and eternity is so abstract. But we need to realize that much of patience is about having a right attitude. We're to endure this crisis with an attitude of patience, a an attitude that looks eagerly forward to the coming of the Lord, eagerly forward to being in God's presence, eagerly forward to a resolution of the crisis, whether it's in this life or the next. We also need to see that he doesn't say to just sit around while we're waiting patiently. And that's where I think we often misunderstand what patience means. We tell our kids, be patient, which really means, would you sit still for a few minutes? I'm kind of busy with something else. That's not what James is talking about. And I think the illustration of the farmer clearly shows that the opposite is true, that, in fact, patience is a busy thing. Because recall that the farmers are very patient, waiting for the rains that they absolutely need, and yet they are busy every single week. Right? They're, they're plowing. They're sowing. They're burying. They're weeding. They're reaping. So as much as they need the rain to accomplish anything, if they don't do their part in cooperation with God, they're just going to have a big wet field of dirt at the end of the rainy season. So when we're in crisis, we need to be like these farmers, right? We need to wait patiently for God's action, but we need to also seek God's will for us, how we are called to cooperate obediently with his will. The most fundamental thing we do to prepare the soil, like the farmers, is to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. So we know that's one thing we are definitely commanded to do every time we're in a crisis. There's no asterisks on this. That's why we gather on Sunday nights to pray for God's Spirit to move powerfully here and in our community. To pray for God's will to be revealed to us, to pray for guidance and help as we move into the future. That's why we ask all our ministries and committees to take five or ten minutes to pray and lift up this church and its leadership and our surrounding community. And just as we pray to prepare the soil... We also need to be planting the seed. That's the word. The Great Commission has no exceptions, no asterisks, no timeouts for a crisis. And that's where I want to involve you and take a few minutes to challenge you. Because we are called to be planting the seed throughout every time, good times and bad times, easy times and difficult times. And here we are in the holidays, and that is a wonderful time to invite people to church. The reality is 
that a very large percentage of people who do not attend church would actually be willing to come if someone would invite them. Even among the people who are most hardened against the gospel, the people who have been most hurt by a church or by Christians, are most offended by the gospel, a significant percentage of them, and I'm not saying a majority in that case, but a significant percentage of them would be willing to give it a shot if someone would just invite them. And the holidays are a great time to invite them. People's minds and hearts turn towards spiritual matters. They remember the things of their childhood. They become a little more open to an invitation. And so what I'm going to ask is very simple, which is that you go ahead and take out your bulletin, take out the yellow slip, and write three names on it. So people who you are committing to in the presence of God to pray for and to invite to church sometime between now and the end of the year. You don't have to witness to them. You don't have to evangelize to them. You don't have to be a theologian. You just need to say, hey, we've got, a, got an interesting sounding series of sermons coming up. We've got a great dinner tonight. We've got a cool musical program coming up. Would you like to join me? So I'm asking you to commit to helping some of your friends be here with you sometime this year if you're feeling like this is a place where you ought to be sometime this year. If you don't have any friends who aren't coming to this church or going to another church, well, then I'd encourage you to get out and make some new friends. That's a long-term project. You may not have to, you don't have to do that in the next six weeks. But you know, put it on your list for 2016, a chance to get out there and, and meet some new folks and help bring them into a body of Christ. If you're new here, you get a pass. You don't have to take it, but I'm, I'm offering it to you. But if you like what you see here, go ahead and grab a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a relative. So let's take a minute and fill out your list. I'm going to fill out mine here. And then I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. I'm going to ask you to just fold it up and put it in the plates to represent your commitment before God. Now, these are anonymous. There are no tracking chips. We're not checking your work. It's all good. You don't need to stress about this. But I'm asking you to take seriously this commitment to pray for someone, to be open to an invitation, and to invite. It's all that. It's that simple. So that's our first command, to be patient, which has two aspects, right? An attitude of patience where we humbly recognize that the situation is often in God's hands, not ours. And then a behavior of obedience to the Lord's guidance in the crisis. The second command, oops, sorry, I did this in the first service too. I've had to put the schedule up, but you've got it in your insert, and the, in the insert's really way better than that. So uh, we'll just not mind that I forgot that two times in a row. If we had a third service, I'm sure I'd be all over it that time. <laughs> so the next command is to be courageous. James continues in verse 8. He says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I found that phrase, establish your hearts, to be unhelpful. I don't do a lot of establishing, and I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. The New Living Translation says, take courage. I find that very helpful. The underlying word here means to strengthen or support something, to tie it fast like the rigging of a ship. 
It originally had a meaning of setting or tying or anchoring something to make it stable and secure. If you if you're a gardener, you might think of staking a plant, a vine, a tomato, something like that, to give it support and strength. So we're being commanded to strengthen and support our hearts, to, to tie them to something strong. We saw last week that the things of the world are not the thing we should be tying our hearts to, because they only make our hearts fat and weak. Instead, as children of God, we are called to anchor our hearts to the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the only things that can truly strengthen our hearts and give us lasting courage. See, in the gospel, we see that our hearts are weak and desperately prone to sin. When we try to endure a crisis only on our strength and our courage, we try really hard to do the right thing as best we can, we so often fail. We fall short of God's standard and calling. And our patience runs out, and our courage runs out, and our energy runs out. And we fail again and again. And it's exhausting and frustrating and depressing. And we just get weaker and weaker. But when we recognize this fact, when we admit that, yes, I am a sinner and I am not strong enough to get through this crisis on my own, and when we realize that God did not leave us alone in our sin and in our crisis, but instead sent his very son to walk this earth and show us the way back to him, and to suffer and to die as a penalty for our sins. When we accept that there is nothing that we can do that will make us good enough to stand in the presence of the Lord. But the sacrifice of his perfect son, Jesus Christ, can make us perfect if we accept him as our Lord and Savior. Then we have something firm and strong to stake our hearts to, We can stake it to the fact that he died and rose from the dead and that through his resurrection, we can have the certainty of eternal life. Then we have the courage to patiently endure suffering. We have the ability to be courageous where before we were fearful. Because we know that God is with us. He lives in us. He hears our prayers. He answers us. Because we know that God loves us so much that he did these things for us, then we know he will never leave us alone. No matter how far we stumble and wander away, no matter how much we flail away trying to do it on our own, he will not abandon us. He is always there waiting to pick us up when we return to him and call on him and admit that we've done wrong. David wrote in Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? That is 100% true for us. God's Spirit seals us and guarantees us we have nothing to fear from an eternal perspective. 
And His Spirit gives us courage and strength and patience to endure in the face of suffering. And that's really the point that James makes in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets of the Old Testament were full of God's Spirit. They were empowered and emboldened by His Spirit to proclaim His Word, and they did so faithfully for as long as it took. But their lives were often terrible. They suffered terribly and were rejected over and over again. But they could persist because of the power of the Spirit. To read through the prophets of the Old Testament is eye-opening, but we don't have the time to read it all today. So I'll give you the short form from Hebrews 11, 35 to 37. It's like the cliff notes. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. But they persisted in fulfilling God's mission. They endured with joy the power of the Spirit. So if you don't feel courageous, realize courage doesn't come from you. Regardless of what we feel, we are commanded here to be courageous. And so God provides the means. We need to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit to dig deep into God's words, to read the promises and assurances there. And he will give us courage. And last of all, we are commanded to be unified. Verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This one is so straightforward, but so difficult. This is one that I have long dealt with, struggled with, I'd say. It'd be more accurate. Apparently, 2,000 years ago, it was just as tempting to turn on one another in an ugly situation as it is today. So often we enter into a crisis with a, with a mindset of tackling it head on and dealing with it and, and, and going after it. We have all kinds of euphemisms and sayings in our language to talk about how, how awesomely and proactively we're going to address a crisis. But as it drags on, our natural energy wanes and our spirit gives out and our patience runs out and our courage fails. And so what do we do? We start to complain. For some of it's sooner, for some of us it's later. We start to look for someone close at hand that we can blame and criticize rather than dealing with the real problem. We criticize leadership. We get irritated with our buddy. We doubt the plan and we doubt the planners. And as we do, we only accelerate our descent into crisis. We might make ourselves feel better for a minute or two, but we're making everyone around us feel worse. And so James explicitly forbids it. And he tells us that there will be accountability and judgment for it. I told the early service, as I've been working on this sermon, I realized I'm going to have a little special extra time in my presentation before the Lord where I'm going to be held to account for complaining and grumbling. See, we need to remember that we have an enemy, individually as Christians and collectively as a church. 
but he is not a person in this room. He's not someone we work with. He's not someone in our family. He's not someone we encounter. He's not someone who used to be here. We have one enemy, the devil. And he loves it when Christians form up the circular firing squad and start going at it. So whenever you feel the temptation to complain or grumble in the midst of a crisis and realize, as with most sermons, I am preaching to myself here, resist it. Pray for help in keeping your tongue that we may stay unified. Be patient. Be courageous. Be unified. That's God's game plan for a crisis. James tells us if we follow it, there will be great reward. Right in verse 11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Well, Job suffered more than any man other than Jesus, but he endured and he kept his faith. And through it, he came to know himself better. He came to know God in a personal way that he never knew him before. He came to understand God much more richly and deeply than he ever had before. And that was before God blessed Job by restoring him double for what he had lost. And James says that that blessing of God is waiting for all who remain steadfast, for those who are patient and courageous and unified. And that blessing may not look like restoration in this life. That was Job's blessing. Our blessing may be very different. But for all who courageously and patiently endure and fulfill God's mission in the face of opposition, there is blessing today. And there is great reward waiting in heaven. Because we know God, and He is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father God, You are so overwhelmingly glorious. You are full of mercy and grace. You are abounding in steadfast love for us. And Lord, we are so grateful for your presence and your power. So Lord, when we are in a crisis, we are in a situation, help us recognize our need, our weakness, and your strength. Help us to rely on your strength to to give us patience to endure, to give us courage in the face of crisis and to help us have a spirit of unity and not division. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If God has been speaking to you this morning through his word, and you feel like you need to pray for courage, or patience, or restraint in difficult times, go ahead and pray now. This is a great time. If he is calling you to come forward and join this church or to put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you have access to this power, then why wait? Please come forward now.